Our scripture reading this morning is from Luke chapter 13, verses 1 through 17, and can be found on page 872 in your pew Bible. There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also, until I dig around it and put on manure. Then, if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And behold, there was a woman who had had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, not the Sabbath day. Then the Lord answered him, You hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? As he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, there's a sobering, serious text that's before us today. And I pray that you'd give us ears to hear it. I'm mindful of the fact that there are people within the sound of my voice who came here today not at all ready to listen. That's no impediment to you. There are people within the sound of my voice who doubtless believe they have listened or are listening, and maybe they aren't. So wherever our souls are today as we come to the word of Christ... I pray that by your Spirit, 
you would cause this word to have its good effect in our hearts. If there are those who are outside of Christ among us today, I pray that they would repent and believe the gospel even today, that you would use your word to awaken them. And I ask, O oh God, that we who profess faith in Christ would not think that this text is irrelevant to us, but would see how it is clearly relevant to us. And that we would, by your grace, believe it and receive it and submit to it and obey it. That's all stuff that only you can do by the power of your spirit, and I ask you to do it for your glory and for the sake of our souls. In Jesus' name, amen. Every day, however you get your news, it's filled with some tragic event, isn't it? A week ago last night in Colorado Springs, someone opens fire in a nightclub. Five people are killed. Earlier this week, some 300 people died when a 5.6 magnitude earthquake shook Indonesia. In Virginia, this past Tuesday, a manager at a Walmart went into an employee break room and shot and killed six people, one of whom was just 16 years old. And more unforeseen deaths will happen before we meet together next week, perhaps even some among us. What's to stop it? Life isn't stable. It only sometimes provides the illusion of stability. So what is the right response to realizing that a tragedy could strike at any moment? Is it to go around terrified and paralyzed with fear? Is it to go around arrogant? Come see, come saw. What will happen will happen. The Lord Jesus is going to teach us in our section of the Gospel of Luke today how you should live in light of the fact that your life could be asked of you at any moment. Do you want to know how to do that? Do you want to know how to live ready for your life being asked of you? Do you want to hear how to do that from the mouth of the Son of God himself? Do you want to know how to live so that you're ready whenever your life is asked of you? Well, if you do, give attention to our text this morning. As Pastor Caleb told us in his excellent sermon last Sunday, Jesus' words at the end of the Gospel of Luke chapter 12 are an urgent call for sinners to repent, to turn from their sins now, lest they be dragged before the judge and imprisoned until they have fully satisfied their debt. What's at the heart of Jesus' teaching at the end of last week's text, verses 57 through 59 of Luke chapter 12, is sin debt, a sin that can never be repaid, an infinite debt for infinitely traitorous sin that an eternity in the lake of fire can't begin to satisfy. That's what's in view in Luke chapter 12, verses 54, or rather 57 through 59. Now, Today, don't let the start of a new chapter fool you into thinking that Luke has turned the page. No, we're still talking about the urgent need for repentance. Immediately after Jesus warns the people 
1257 through 59 to settle their sin accounts with the Lord quickly through repentance and faith. Notice here, some people mentioned to Jesus a recent newsworthy event. Some Jews from the region of Galilee were going up to Jerusalem to offer sacrifices at the temple. But while they were doing that, the beginning of chapter 13 tells us, Pilate, that's Pontius Pilate, he was the governor of the region of Judea, where Jerusalem and Bethlehem and cities like that were. He was a a governor under the auspices of the Roman emperor, the Roman empire. So Pontius Pilate, he had these Jews killed as they were going from Galilee to Jerusalem to offer sacrifices at the temple. We don't know why Pilate did this, but there are accounts of his rule in Judea that show Pilate to have been cruel and violent toward the Jews at times. But note Jesus' response in verses 2 through 3 to this story. Do you think these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. There was a prevailing view among Jews in Jesus' day that you could draw a straight line between something bad happening to a person and that person's own morality. If a person was good, good things would happen to him. If a person was bad, bad things would happen to him. You see an example of this kind of thinking in John chapter 9 and the account of Jesus' healing of the man born blind. John chapter 9 verses 1 through 2 says, As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind. See, everybody thought, well, this man's blindness must be the result of someone's sin. God's cursing this man for some reason. So whose sin is to blame for his blindness? And Jesus corrects them. He says, no, this man was born blind for the glory of God. Jesus is challenging that mindset in our text here. He tells his listeners He wants his listeners to know that those Galileans who were massacred by Pilate on their way to the temple with sacrifices in hand were no worse sinners than any of the other Galileans. By extension, no worse sinners than any of the people Jesus is talking to on this day. No worse sinners. The lesson is clear. Repent, lest you be struck down without warning just as those Galileans were. Jesus emphasizes the lesson he's wanting his hearers to learn in verses 4 through 5 with another recent tragedy. A tower at the pool of Siloam near Jerusalem fell and killed 18 people. Those 18 people weren't worse offenders. They weren't worse sinners, debtors toward God than any of the other people who lived in Jerusalem, were they? Jesus asks, no. But if his hearers don't repent, they will suffer sudden, deadly destruction too. Jesus is working to get his message about the urgent, immediate need for repentance clear. And he does it by pivoting off of two stories of people who died horribly, getting massacred in one case and having a tower fall on them in another. 
People who died with no forewarning. You don't know when your life will end, Jesus is saying. So repent. Because if you don't, you will suffer a bloody, horrific death as these did. But the death they suffered was immediate. Those who die without having repented will suffer eternally. And then to illustrate what he's been saying up till now about the profound necessity of repentance from sin. Jesus gives a short parable in verses 6 through 8. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard. The Jewish people were often represented by a fig tree in Old Testament prophetic books like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Hosea and Micah. And the fig tree in this parable represents Israel too. So the man says to his gardener, vine dresser, the ESV has in verse 7 here. He says to his gardener essentially, look, you planted this doggone thing three years ago. It hasn't put out a single fig. Cut it down. It's a waste of space. It's a waste of the nutrients from the ground that these other fruit-bearing trees could be using. But the vine dresser asks the master for patience. Sir, give it another year. I'll do some digging, do some aerating, get Aaron Smith and his crew over there. <laughs> I'll put some manure down as fertilizer. And if it bears fruit next year, well and good. If not, then you can cut it down. Jesus is still on the theme of the urgent need for repentance with this parable. By and large, the nation of Israel has not received Jesus' words and his works. Jesus came to his own, the Gospel of John chapter 1 says, he came to the Jews as a Jew, and his own received him not. They have not trusted in him as Messiah. They have not, like this fig tree that pictures them, borne the fruit of repentance. And that's despite John the Baptist, who exhorted them to do that very thing back in the Gospel of Luke chapter 3, verses 7 and 8. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized him, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, bear fruits in keeping with repentance, John the Baptist told them. But they haven't done that. And so they're good for nothing except to be cut down. But the vine dresser's request to the landowner reflects the Father's mercy and patience toward Israel and toward all sinners. Israel had really never borne any lasting fruit, had they? Essentially, none of the Exodus and wilderness generation made it into the promised land because of their idolatry and their grumbling against God and Moses and just their rank unbelief. Not long after that, in the time of the judges, what are we told at the beginning and end of the book of Judges? Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Not long after that, the body of Israel's third king, Solomon, was barely cold before the kingdom had been divided north and south. 
Eventually, the northern kingdom would cease to exist. Southern kingdom was ruled by godless, wicked kings, at least as often as it was ruled by righteous ones. And yet the Lord brought the Jews back from exile in Babylon. He let them rebuild the temple. He let them be reestablished in their homeland. He didn't destroy them because of their sinful rebellion toward him and their injustice toward each other and their unbelief. He sent his Messiah to them. The Lord was merciful and patient despite what the Jews deserved for their sin. Just as this landowner was patient, giving this fruitless fig tree one more year. But notice verse 9. If that fig tree didn't bear fruit, then the landowner's mercy and patience would be gone. It would be time for that tree to be cut down. John the Baptist preached, again, back in Luke chapter 3, to a nation of Jews whose lives didn't bear good fruit. He said to them, Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. The tree in this parable already had the axe laid to its roots. If it didn't bear fruit next year, that axe would be its death. It would be cut down. It would be thrown into the fire. Now I want to call on all of you to think on the one who was cut down for the sake of sinners like you. Think of the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. Didn't he bear every lovely fruit to the full? Every good, God-pleasing fruit could be found in his life. All the fruit that the Spirit produces in the life of the genuine believer, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. The Lord Jesus Christ bore these perfectly with his life all the time. He's the only one who ever did. And yet for the sake of his enemies, he permitted himself to be cut down as a fruitless tree. Listen to how Isaiah, Isaiah prophesied of Christ's death on the cross. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? Daniel chapter 9 prophesies of the Messiah, the anointed one. An anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. Christ was cut off. He was cut down in the prime of his life on the cross for the sake of sinners. The only fruitful one in the place of utterly fruitless ones like you. Christian, does this cause your heart to be filled with thankfulness and love for Christ? That he who perfectly bore fruit who didn't deserve to be cut down, was cut down in your place, in the place of you who 
who bore no fruit before he saved you? What wondrous love is this, O my soul? An unbeliever, I ask you, who's going to be cut down for your fruitlessness? Someone will be. Will it have been Christ cut down for your sin on the cross as revealed by your repenting from your sin and believing the gospel? Or, unchristian, will it be you yourself cut down and thrown in the eternal fire because you would not forsake your sin for the sake of your eternal soul? Well, having warned us of the urgent need for repentance in chapter 13, verses 1 through 5, and then having given us a parable of the destruction that awaits those whose lives do not produce fruit in verses 6 through 9, Luke is now going to show us in verses 10 through 17 what it looks like to live a life characterized by this unrepentant fruitlessness. And it turns out, it looks like a lack of love for God and his people. Now let me just kind of put even this section of our text in its context. We've just wrapped up a big section of teaching from Jesus that began at chapter 12 and verse 1 and ends here at chapter 13 and verse 8. And we're going to see now one of the few miracles that are found in this big part of Luke's gospel that we find ourselves in, beginning at chapter 9, verse 51, (coughs) excuse me, into chapter 19. That's a section, as we've been saying all along, in which Jesus teaches a great deal about what it does and does not look like to be one of his genuine disciples, one of his genuine followers. So with that block of teaching from 12.1 to 13.8 behind us, Jesus has come to a synagogue, a Jewish house of worship on the Sabbath. That's what Luke tells us in chapter 13, verse 10. The Sabbath was... Saturday, according to our reckoning of the days of the week. And as was typical for a Jewish teacher, a rabbi, like Jesus was, the Lord is teaching in this particular synagogue on the Sabbath day. And Luke arrests our attention. He says, behold, in this congregation was a woman said to have a disabling spirit that resulted in her being bent over and not able to fully straighten herself out for 18 years. Years. And then notice verse 12. When Jesus saw her. Don't skip over the compassion that's found in those words. Jesus saw her. And he called her over. And he said to her, woman, you are freed from your disability. This disability that had you severely bent for 18 years in chronic pain, you're freed from that. That's what Jesus is saying. And he lays hands on her. There's no process to this healing. Immediately, Luke says, she was made straight. And she did what she ought to have done. She glorified God. She was praising the Lord. If you'll permit me to speculate... While I admit that I am speculating, 
She might have got to dancing a little bit, I think. Kind of like we saw those of you who went on the St. Croix mission trip back in the spring of 2018 during the church services that we went to. She might have got to dance and doing the kind of praising that she wasn't able to do for 18 years when she was chronically and severely bent over and chronically in pain. How would you have responded at witnessing a sight like that? Well, I hope it's not how Luke tells us that the ruler of the synagogue and his pals responded. This ruler of the synagogue was kind of a a master of ceremonies for the synagogue worship service. He was in charge of keeping order and moving the service along. And Luke tells us he's indignant about what's happened. He's angry. He's seething that this woman who's been bent over for nearly 20 years has been set free from this miserable miserable condition and is praising the Lord. And he's indignant because Jesus had the audacity to heal this woman on the Sabbath. And he stands up and he rebukes the congregation. There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, not on the Sabbath day. The ruler of the synagogue is right, of course, that the law of Moses only allows for work on six days of the week and forbids working on the Sabbath. In fact, that's one of the Ten Commandments from Exodus chapter 20. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. This guy decides that Jesus' healing this woman constitutes Sabbath-breaking labor. And he thinks he's righteous in his anger toward God the Son in the flesh for healing this woman on the Sabbath. And Jesus will have none of it. He responds both to the ruler and to anyone in the synagogue who might be in agreement with him. He says, hypocrites! You work on the Sabbath. You know that your teaching on the law of Moses allows for certain types of work to be done even on the Sabbath. You untie your ox or your donkey from its feeding trough and lead it to go get water. The Greek word that's translated untie here in verse 15 is related to the word that's translated freed. Back in verse 12, woman, you're freed from your disability. Jesus is pointing out their wicked, cruel hypocrisy. Do you see? These guys are fine freeing their ox or their donkey on the Sabbath, and so is the law of Moses, by the way, so that the animal can drink. But they get indignant when a daughter of Abraham is freed, is untied, is loosed from a debilitating ailment from Satan that had her bound for 18 years. They can untie their donkey, but don't untie this woman. With clear consciences, they loose their animals from their bonds on the Sabbath. And then they get angry when the Lord looses their supposed neighbor, their supposed fellow member of the covenant community from her bonds on the Sabbath. Church, do you see 
The fruitlessness of unrepentance. Do you see, church, from this text, how great is the sinfulness of sin? These guys prided themselves, we saw back in chapter 12, of the ability to tell from a cloud that's rising in the west that a storm was on its way. They prided themselves in their ability to tell from a south wind that it was going to be a hot day. But they can't interpret the signs that matter. They can't interpret the signs that are staring them right in the face. They can't interpret the signs that tell them that the long-awaited Messiah is in their midst. Isaiah prophesied, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute man sing for joy. And they're seeing the time Isaiah is prophesying break in right before their eyes. A crippled woman is made to stand up straight, and she's glorifying God, and she's set free from her captivity to this disabling spirit from Satan. It means Messiah has come. And he's doing the things that the prophet said he would do. And he's doing them in their midst before their eyes. And instead, notice the fruitlessness of unrepentance. Instead of falling at the Lord's feet in joy and awe and worship, they get indignant. How dare he break the Sabbath law, working a healing on the Sabbath. Jesus wasn't breaking the Sabbath law. He never broke any of God's law. He kept all God's law perfectly, and you better be glad he did, or his death on the cross is of no account for your soul. But remember that God's law is encapsulated in the command to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And to love your neighbor as yourself. And so by having compassion on this crippled woman and by healing her, Jesus isn't breaking a command. He's actually the one obeying the command to love his neighbor. This daughter of Abraham, as he loves himself by healing her and setting her free to glorify God with her life. It's the ruler of the synagogue and those hypocrites like him who, while they posture as people who are jealous for God's law, are actually breaking it by caring more for their oxen and their donkey than this poor woman. Is it for oxen that God is concerned Paul asks in 1 Corinthians 9. And the answer, of course, is no. Not more than he's concerned for people made in his image. And so our text ends with Luke telling us that as Jesus said these things, all Jesus' opponents were put to shame, and rightly so. And the others who were there rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by the Lord himself in their midst. Now as we think about how to make use of this text, Luke 13, 1-17, I want to address you who are not Christians. And let me just say on the front end that I know that there are Christians among us 
who know that this is the time in our sermon when the preachers up here talk to unbelievers. And you've heard it, some of you, literally a thousand times. I've been praying for you this week. I'm asking that the Lord by his spirit will arrest your attention and give you ears to hear another time. Unbeliever, do you hear the Lord speaking to you from this text today? If you haven't come to faith in Christ, your life, like the tree in Jesus' parable, does not bear the fruit of repentance. It doesn't bear the fruit that the master is looking for. And the axe is already laid to the root of the tree that is your fruitless life. So I plead with you, oh, please repent and believe the gospel. Don't be uncaring about the state of your soul any longer. Repent and believe the gospel, lest you be cut down and thrown into a fire at a time you don't know. If Jesus had been walking among us today looking to teach these same lessons, perhaps someone in the crowd would have come up to him to mention to Jesus the shooting at that LGBTQ nightclub in Colorado Springs last Saturday night. Five people dead, injured more than a dozen others. And many of you who are non-Christians here this morning know and even affirm what the Bible teaches about sexuality. That God created sex to take place between a married biological male and a married biological female. And to you, unbelievers, I say, do you think that the people in that nightclub were worse sinners than all the other Coloradoans because they suffered this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Perhaps if Jesus were walking among us today, he might then remind the crowd or those nearly 300 people who died from the 5.6 magnitude earthquake in Indonesia this week. Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Indonesia? No, but I tell you, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Pilate's slaughter of the Galileans. And the tower at Siloam killing these 18 in Jerusalem. These happened suddenly and without warning. Just like that nightclub shooting that killed five. And the Walmart shooting this week that killed six. And the Indonesian earthquake. They happened suddenly and without warning. No one expects not to go home from the nightclub. No one expects to be shot at Walmart. No one wakes up thinking an earthquake will kill them that day. And no age group is immune to sudden death. think about our friend Lizzie who shared just this past Sunday about a car accident that killed the brother of a young girl that was known to at least a few students in our congregation. Who saw a tragic accident like that coming? No one. And that's the point Jesus is making unbelievers. Listen to me. You don't know when the Lord will say to you, as he said to the man in the parable back in chapter 12 and verse 20, you don't know when he will say to you, this night your soul is required of you. Solomon said in Ecclesiastes 9.12, For man does not know his time, like fish that are taken in an evil net, and like birds that are caught in a snare. So the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. 
But if you do not repent from your sins, unbeliever, hear the word of the Lord. Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Just as those Galileans did at Pilate's sword, and just as those 18 did when the tower fell, your death is going to come, perhaps suddenly, and there'll be no opportunity to repent then. And as one set of 10 trillion millennia gives way to another set of 10 trillion millennia, and you're suffering an agony beyond, beyond your ability to even imagine as the just payment for your sin debt to God, you'll hear the words from this preacher reverberating in your head, and you'll wish that you repented when you had the chance. I have good news for you. You have the chance today. You have the chance today, unbeliever. Don't wait. Hell will be full of those who, would, who were going to repent tomorrow or when they finished high school and it wouldn't have cost so much or when they finished college or when they got married or when they got kids or when they were ready to settle down or when they were ready to be done sowing their wild oats. No, unbeliever, no. Put thoughts like that out of your head. Repent today. Turn from your sins today. Believe on Christ and his death and resurrection for sinners like you today, or you will all likewise perish. The Lord Jesus can do for you what he did for the woman in the synagogue. However old you are, unbeliever, that's how many years you've been bent down and brought low by your sin. That's how many years you've been bound by Satan. But unbeliever, Jesus has the power to free you and to loose you from being a slave to sin, to loose you from being liable to being cut down and cause you instead to be a slave to righteousness and bear fruit in keeping with repentance. That's what he did for every Christian in this room. That's what he can do for you. So do you want to be saved, my non-Christian friend? Then take a minute, even now, and pray and ask God to give you the grace to repent and believe the gospel. Ask him to give you grace to see your need for Christ as Lord and Savior and to give you faith in Christ. It's God alone who saves. And he loves to save sinners just like you. So ask him. Ask him to be merciful to you so that your life will bear fruit and so that you won't be cut down eternally. How can we, my brothers and sisters, apply these verses to our lives? Well, first I'd remind you of what Martin Luther, uh, Martin Luther said in the first of his 95 theses that he nailed to the door of the city church in Wittenberg a little over 505 years ago. Here's what Luther wrote, quote, When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, Repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Luther's right. The entire life of believers is to be one of repentance. 
Yes, there's an initial repentance, of course, that brings you into the kingdom. There's an initial repentance from sin that God graciously grants you when he forgives your sin and gives you eternal life through his son. But just as essential is ongoing repentance that reveals that you were indeed graciously given that initial repentance. So Christian, let me ask you, are you satisfied that repenting from sin is something that you did back then when you first believed? Or are you clear that repenting is an ongoing fruit of having been born again from above? Christian, are you aware that there's an ongoing need to rely on God's grace and the power of his Holy Spirit to grant you repentance? When you're done with sin, you can be done with repentance, but you're not done with sin yet, and you won't be until you're dead. So you're not done with repentance. And so ask the Lord to show you where he'd have you repent. This is actually a delightful exhortation that I give to you. Rejoice that if you're in Christ, he gives you grace and power to repent from sin. And then repent. Maybe you need to repent from idle words and gossiping and backbiting and tearing down words. Words that don't build up or give grace to those who hear. Maybe you need to repent from watching television shows or movies or websites or podcasts or social media accounts that, while not explicit perhaps, still take your heart and your mind to places you know it shouldn't go. Places that don't help your heart and your mind be directed Christward. Maybe you need to repent from anger and pride and jealousy. Maybe you need to repent from, as we've been talking about in recent weeks, worry and fear and unbelief. Perhaps you need to repent from discontentment and irritability. Maybe you need to repent from greed and being obsessed with possessions. Maybe you need to repent from pride, being consumed with how others think of you, your employees or your employers or your coworkers or your classmates or your teammates. Perhaps, professing believer, you need to repent from living without joy and thankfulness for Christ and the gospel. Maybe you need to repent from not inviting folks to church or gospel outreach events. Perhaps you need to repent from not prioritizing the gathering of the saints on Sunday morning. Wherever there is need for repentance, Christian, repent. And then when God mercifully shows you other sins, repent from those sins too. Repentance isn't just a good idea for the believer. It's an essential if you're going to be found in Christ when he returns. It's not something, excuse me, it's not something you can drum up. It's a gift from God, just like saving faith. But if he has saved you, he has given you the grace and power to repent. And that's reason to be thankful. What he commands of you, hallelujah, he causes you to be able to do. So repent and keep repenting for Jesus' sake and for yours. Yes, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he willed for the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. And finally, let me offer a warning, professing believer. 
regarding fruitfulness. It is possible to profess faith in God and to believe yourself to be saved as all these Israelites represented by the fig tree in Jesus' parable would have done, and still to have the acts of God's wrath laid to the root of your life because of your fruitlessness. If you are in Christ, you will bear the fruit of the Spirit. You'll probably bear more fruit the longer you're in Christ, And you'll never bear all the fruit that it's possible to bear all the time. You won't ever be a perfect fruit bearer in this life. But the fact remains that when God saves a man, when God saves a woman, he causes them to bear fruit. The fruit of the Spirit, Paul gives us in Galatians 5. I've mentioned them before. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. He causes you to bear that fruit in an ever-increasing way until the sun returns and glorifies you and you bear that fruit then perfectly and eternally. So let me ask you, you who profess faith in Christ, do you see evidence of the fruit of the Spirit in your life? Do you see evidence of love? Love for God borne out by love for his people. That was the sin in the synagogue, wasn't it? The ruler of the synagogue and his cronies loved their oxen and their donkeys, and they loved their wrong-headed misunderstanding of God's law more than they loved this crippled woman, which revealed they didn't love God or his law at all because it commanded them to love this woman. They didn't love the Lord who kept God's law perfectly and to whom God's law pointed, even as he healed in front of their very eyes. Does your life bear the spirit fruit of love for God and for his people? And if you say yes, let me just ask you kindly, what's the evidence for it? What's the evidence for love for God borne out by love for his people? Is it warm and fuzzy feelings and sentimental thoughts? They don't pass the test. I'm asking, do you lay down your life for God's people? Do you lay down your life for your brothers and sisters in Christ? Not perfectly, but really. Do you bear the fruit of joy? Do you bear the fruit of peace do you bear the fruit of patience we could go the whole list all the rest kindness goodness faithfulness again not perfectly but really and truly if you don't you'll be cut down and thrown into the fire and I don't want you to be deceived only God can produce this fruit in your life by his spirit. But when he has graciously visited you with salvation, you will bear this fruit. And if you don't bear this fruit, there's reason to be troubled about your soul. So ask God to show you how you're doing here. 
Ask him to help you grow in bearing fruit that keeps his vengeful acts from being laid to your root when you die. Ask God for grace that you would not be the third soil on which gospel seed is sown. Jesus says of that soil in Mark chapter 4, They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word and it proves unfruitful. And to all of you, I say, may God give us the grace to see that urgent need to repent from all sin, both now and all the way to the end, so that we will not be cut down in judgment by Christ at his return. He was cut down in the place of his people. May he be praised forever. Let's pray. Father, what a dire warning from your son. I pray that we would heed it. I praise you for your son, who though he bore fruit perfectly, was willing to be cut off, cut down in the place of his people that we may have eternal life in him, that we may begin by your grace to bear fruit in keeping with repentance, to bear spirit fruit. Help these friends of mine, Father, wherever they are, to bear fruit lest they be cut down at the last day. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.